Do you need treatment or surgery? There's no need to wait or travel abroad. Receive treatment at Kingsbridge Private Hospital in Belfast or Ballykelly under the Northern Ireland Planned Healthcare Scheme at potentially no cost. Why wait? Text hello to 51777 or visit kingsbridgeprivatehospital.com for further information. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. Hello, and you are very welcome to this week's episode of Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I hope you are safe and well as you tune in this August week. On this week's show, we're going to be looking at a Midlands company who's looking to alternative fuel for their company vehicles. We'll be checking in with Grant Engineering in Burr. But first things first, we're going to start off with some positive news. And we're joined now by Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland, uh, fresh from the Dublin Horse Show. Niall, uh, <laughs> thank you for uh, fitting us in after what I expect was a very tiring week. Oh, it, it was a very tiring week, but a very enjoyable week. We met lots of uh, lots of very environmentally minded people at the horse show. It's, it's a great audience there for us and signed up lots of new Birdwatch Ireland members. So I'm delighted. It's great. So, Niall, talk to me about the lap wing. There is some positive news to start off our week in County Down, up near Downpatrick, I believe. That's right. Yes. So uh, the lapwing, it's um, a bird that was once very common across the Irish countryside, a bird that would be traditionally have bred in, in fields and meadows, would have been very common all across Ireland. Uh, in the winter, we still get reasonably good numbers of them. But as a breeding species, the population has been declining because most of the ones we see in winter are migrants from, from elsewhere in Europe that are coming in. And all across the island, the, the island of Ireland, there have been uh, quite a few initiatives in recent years to try and get uh, lapwings to, to be able to, to nest again. We've been doing work ourselves in uh, in um, Wicklow at one of our nature reserves, our East Coast nature reserve, to try to, to sort uh, that out and try to get those birds in, which is which is really, really good. Uh, and this, uh, now in County Down, on the other side of the border, um, we've seen two pairs have returned to a field there near Patrick, as you said, and that's really encouraging. Uh, still a long way to go for that species to be considered recovered, but um, it's off to a good start at least. So I am pleased to hear that. Uh, Lapwing, like a lot of our breeding waders, virtually all of our breeding waders have suffered massive declines and gone from historical highs of many thousands of pairs across the country to just a few hundred today. So the lapwing is um, a bird that needs a lot of help and a lot of protection. And it's good to see that um, in County Down that they've had this breakthrough. So really pleased to see it. I have to admit, when I woke up to the news on the radio this morning, I, I it's a breed I haven't heard of before. Mm. I'm not a twitcher. I'm not a bird watching expert. Mm. Um, but it is positive to hear that these efforts are proving successful because I know an awful lot of work goes in, like something similar to the Grey Partridge project, which has been underway in County Offaly for, for several years now at this stage. You know, these are efforts and projects that often go unnoticed by yes. the rest of us here in the general population. But, you know, it is it is great to hear something positive, particularly when we're surrounded by what has been a very challenging year climate wise around the world. Oh, yes, absolutely. And and these unsettled weather patterns, the terrible fires we've seen in Maui and, and across southern Europe as well, um, Italy, Greece, every, it's really, really shocking to see it. We've seen uh, the Cota Genana, one of the most important national parks in Spain and indeed in all of Europe, um, going dry this year. The main lake there has dried up over the last, uh, the last week, which is just shocking for all the water birds that are relying on that. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why our wading birds are declining so drastically. And if you couple that with massive changes to the Irish landscape, 
landscape, particularly mm-hmm. uh, in terms of farming and, and and the use of our bogs and so on, this has impacted them very, very badly. So w- we know that it's really emergency measures. We need to do uh, a lot to to restore them. And I think you're right. I think a lot of people in Ireland aren't, aren't really aware that this is happening. And, and the lapwing, certainly it's a bird that, uh, that deserves to be much better known in Ireland. In fact, it's been proposed as a candidate many times for Ireland's national bird. Um, oh. Both because it has a big uh, folk, uh, there's a long folk memory of it across the country. It's also a very attractive and slightly unusual bird, but also because it has the colours of the Irish flag and its plumage, it's mainly sort of green and white with a bit of orange and, under the tail. Uh, so, um, so Ireland officially doesn't have a, a, a national bird, or in a few countries in Europe that doesn't. But certainly the lapwing would be a, be a good candidate for that. It's um, known by other names as oh, some of the older names for it is green plover. There's one word that people might know for it. One name. Uh, it's a member of the plover family. Uh, another one is the peewit after its call. So people listening might have heard of the peewit. Uh, and they're amazing birds. Uh, they're called lapwing because they have these these big, broad, black and white wings. So on the ground, they look dark from a distance. Up close, you see they're actually lovely iridescent green with lots of bronzes and purples and uh, all sorts of sheen in the feather. They have a long crest at the back of the head that sort of hangs down, big black uh, back crest on their white head. But when they take flight, these black and white wings are the most striking thing. They're very broad and paddle-like. And when you see one bird on its own, it's uh, it's very, very obvious. But when you see a flock of them flying together, all that black and white, it looks like lights flashing on all over the place. And it's thought to be an adaptation that makes it harder for birds of prey like hawks or falcons to pick out an individual target uh, in that flock. It's just dazzled by the, the wings. Okay. So that's, that's that meant. So that's also one of the reasons why the bird has been struggling, because as as the, the breeding population has become less and less, um, the, the fewer pairs, what happens in these breeding colonies, they can't form these big flocks anymore. It's much mm-hmm. easier for a predator to single them out. Um, and even with um, with predators like foxes, when you have a good population of lapwing, they nest on the ground, so they're very vulnerable. But if you have if you have dozens or even hundreds of them nesting in one area, if a fox come in, they can they can drive it away. They, they can they can swoop at it, they can harass it. But if you just have a couple of pairs, the, the fox isn't That's bothered and it can yeah. easily get the eggs and chicks. It's not the fox's fault, it's human's fault. It's because we've made life so hard for the lapwing. And like, talk to me about the, like, what, like, how does it work for people who are not into watching birds or, yeah. or even conserving animals? Um, like, if you recognize that, okay, in this instance, the, the lapwing or the corncrake, which we're going to mention in a couple of minutes time, that if you meant, if you realize uh, as an expert in this area that, okay, here in the Midlands, an X species is on the decline, we need to step in here. Like, what do you need to do then to to mind these creatures? How does it work on a, on a practical basis? A very good question. I, I think that the, fir- the first difficulty is actually noticing the decline in the first place to work out okay. when a species is in trouble because it can be very hard to assess that, particularly for species that tend to be in remote areas or that tend to be... Uh, quite secretive in the breeding season. It's very easy for us to monitor birds in our back gardens or in our parks or urban areas. And, you know, lots of survey work done there and that's really important. It's much harder to survey species that are spread out over a wider area and not concentrated. So once you've identified that, the, the next step is to work out why that species is declining. What is the problem or in, in many cases, multiple problems that have been driving the decline of that species um, and then to try and counteract those and to, and to address them. And sometimes what's, what's needed, particularly with these breeding wading birds like the lapwing and the curlew, another, another example, is that um, sometimes you have to take interim measures to preserve, do whatever you can to preserve the existing population um, by excluding predators, making sure there's no disturbance from humans. 
waiting so that at least we still have a core population of these still existing so that when habitat uh, restoration can happen, which takes a lot a lot longer, it's a longer timescale, then there will still be some birds left to populate that. So that, that's what happens. And, and it really, there's no one size fits all method. It really depends on the bird species because each bird ha- and, and indeed all creatures in nature have their own specific niche. No, no two are alike. No two have exactly the same requirements. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to identify the reasons for decline in the first place, okay. but also even harder to address them. So with the lapwing, for example, we know that it's been changes in the landscape uh, that, that um, in, with intensification of farming, with uh, summer flooding in, in places like the Shannon Callows, with um, more um, unsettled weather during the summer because of climate change. We know that this has made life very difficult for them. The population is reduced to the point where they can no longer really defend their nests from predators. So until we can tackle the root causes at a national level, what we need to do is we need to try and safeguard as many of those nests as possible. And what works with lapwings particularly is using electric fencing around the fields where they're nesting. So that excludes um, some of the, at least some of the land-based predators like foxes and friends them uh, from coming in uh, and that allows the core population to slowly maturely to build up. You also want to do simple things like remove perching points around. So you have an electric fence but you don't want anything that but birds can perch on either because what crows and you know, birds like hooded crows, rooks, jackdaws, what they'll do is they'll um, use those fence posts as perches to look in and see where the birds are nesting. One of the reasons why... They're clever little things really, aren't oh, they? Well, extremely smart, yeah. absolutely. And they're only doing what it takes to survive. It's not their mm-hmm. fault at all. And if we had healthy populations of, of these other birds like lapwings, crows taking a few chicks or eggs would make no conservation difference whatsoever. That's the way it has been for millennia in Ireland before we humans messed it up. Uh, but what 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 happens is that uh, these, these birds like lapwing and curry, they like to nest in big open spaces with few reference points and where there are no perches where crows and, and birds of prey can perch to watch for them coming and going from the nest. Uh, and when there's perches there, like telegraph poles or fence posts, that can make it much easier for the crows to spot them. Maybe forestry plantations, that's a, that's another thing that can happen where there were no trees in bogland. That's been a big reason why the, the, the curly has been having such a hard time of it because it allows purchase for crows to, to look at them from and uh, and watch where they're going. Uh, the lapwing has a, a really interesting defense mechanism actually as well when they're nesting. It's it's the bird that famously pretends it has a broken wing to lure a predator away from the nest. Okay. Uh, so um, if you're out walking um, in, in a field and you happen to see this, this um, green and white bird, black and white wings, you see it sort of limping in front of you, dragging one wing along the ground and lead, going in a very specific direction. What that is, it's, it's a lapwing that you've got a bit too close to the nest. You might be within a few meters of it and it doesn't know you don't mean any harm. Uh, it thinks you're a predator and it's trying to lure you away with the promise of an easy meal. You, you know, if a predator like, like a fox would think this this lapwing, it's injured, it's not going to be able to get away, it's, I'm going to be able to get this. And slowly but surely leads the predator away from the nest, then miraculously recovers and flies off to safety and then hopefully at that stage it's far enough away from the nest that it's no longer a threat. Genius, really. Uh, yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely genius. Now, on a, a slightly more negative note, uh, the corn crake, there has been further decline. And mm. like the corn crake is one of those birds that like I don't think I've ever heard myself in the wild. Um, I, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't think I have. It's mating call at night, though, is particularly distinctive. And I know generations yes. of Irish people um, particularly people who lived in rural Ireland would be very familiar with the sound of it. And it's really probably millennials down that are not, which is quite sad. So what's the story there? Because this has been a problem now for a considerable period of time. 
It has. The, the, the corn crake, I think, is really the flagship species to, for indicating uh, environmental decline in how species that's one's very common can, can, can rapidly decrease in number. So uh, back around 1950, there was a nationwide survey in Ireland and there were 50,000 pairs of corn crake recorded absolutely everywhere. And they have this really strange mechanical, um, harsh kind of croaking call um, song that the males make at night. And that's how you survey them. You, you count the number of, of calling males. They're very hard bird to see. They're one of the most secretive birds in Ireland. They just don't like to come out into the open. They're also ventriloquists too. So if you find a patch of long grass and you hear a, a corn crake calling from it and it looks like, it seems like it must be just in front of you. It actually could be a few feet behind you. It's just they throw their voices amazingly well. Um, so 50,000 or so in the 1950s, that went down to a population of um, maybe 150 or less across Ireland. Now there is some some hope. I re- was really pleased to see the National Parks and Wildlife Statistics just released um, uh, just, just, just very recently showing that this year there had been a 35% in increase up to 218 um, calling males across the country, um, which which is a definitely a move in the right direction. But of course, it's from a very, very low base. So 35% sounds like a lot. We're still talking a minuscule number of birds. And, um, you know, so, do we know how many from 50,000 breeding pairs we know roughly? The, the current figures is 218 is what this census has revealed. But there's so, you know, so that that is that's better so, than it was a couple of years ago. But okay. it's a tiny, tiny population. Um, the Some hope as well for the first time in 25 years, a corn crake was heard on the Aran Islands, um, a place that they would once have been an abundant uh, species. Um, not sure it was confirmed that it actually bred or not, but at least that's a, a step in the right direction. So we have to be optimistic about these things. Uh, we also have to be realistic too. Uh, the corncrake is not going to be able to return to vast swathes of the Irish countryside where it, where it used to live because the habitat has changed for it beyond all recognition. Uh, it's a bird that needs wildflower meadows, rank hay meadows, lots of nettles, lots of iris. Uh, and in the parts of Ireland where those, uh, where those still can be found, that's where you find your your corn crake. So places like Tory Island, Donegal, uh, Inish Boffin, another island uh, where, where, where you can find them in, in decent numbers. Uh, Birdwatch Ireland has a reserve in the Mullet Peninsula in, in County Mayo where we have corn crakes there now as well uh, and we manage the land very effectively for them and there's lots of people doing great work around the country but it's all a couple of pairs here, a couple of pairs there. What yeah. we really need is to find ways to join up these remaining fragments of habitat so that these birds and especially the youngsters have somewhere to go when their time comes to breed. And one of the biggest problems we have with corn crakes is that they're very short-lived. So we're talking, you know, birds like curlews and lapwings, they can live for, for 10, 15 years, maybe even 20 years if they're very, very fortunate. So at least if the adults fail one year, well, they, they live to fight or to breed another day. With the corn crake, they only live for about two years. They're very short-lived. Oh, right. Yeah. So, uh, and they nest on the ground. So one of the big, the big problems, um, you know, happened when, when agriculture cultural intensification took hold across Ireland, These this traditional farming disappeared. The corn crake couldn't survive. But dig on in some places, particularly in the Midlands, in, in the Shannon Callows, that was, that was a until relatively recently, that was a real stronghold for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, they nest on the ground and there's been a big problem with summer flooding uh, through a the A massive Shannon. problem. And like, I know I've been covering it for, for years on the Shannon Callows. I remember being down there uh, I'd say 2011 covering it. Yep. Like it's it's going on a very long time. And, and it's, it's one of those issues that, that it seems to me, Niall, that farmers and biodiversity uh, conservationists and mm. bird watchers that everybody's in agreement that it just needs to be tackled for the good of everything. 
Oh, absolutely, because it's it's a complete breakdown of of a natural system. It's obviously nor totally normal for the Callows area to flood in the winter, and that's what made makes the soil so rich. Um, it's it's so fertile. Um, it's also why it was uh, ideal for a traditional type of hay farming as well, which is why the corn crake managed to persist there. It wasn't intensively <laughs> grazed for silage or cut for silage or grazed by by cattle. And um, but what happened was it used to be that summer flooding in the Shannon Callows historically was a once in twenty year event. It was. You know, the, the the by far the exception rather than the rule, uh, and that was okay for corn crakes because if, okay, if, if they nest in the ground and if it floods, um, well, their eggs and chicks will perish; they won't survive. But the adults, which live for two years, at least could return the following year, have a successful breeding season, and the population would continue. With the Shannon, though, what happens if you got flooding two or three years in a row? That's your entire corn crake population gone because there's no adults left to replace the to be replaced. You know, there's no chicks are left to replace yeah. the adults in the population when they die, uh, and corn crakes always return to the same area. Where they they where they were raised. It's actually what we found out from research in the Netherlands. It's when when corn crakes first see the night sky, they fix the position of the stars and return to that precise location. And research actually found this in a really unexpected way. They were um, captive no, 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 rearing. No, 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 hold, 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 hold on, we can't just bypass that because I'm <laughs> just thinking we like we're just over the weekend at the Tullamore Show. We've had Forest Fest. We've had all these festivals where I guarantee you at least one listener will have struggled to find their car in the car park afterwards. <laughs> and you're telling me that these tiny, tiny creatures are able to identify the precise position of the stars that yes. they first saw. Yes, yes. And it's it's mind-boggling, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and they migrate all the way to Southern Africa. So this tiny little bird that lives in the grass is so secretive and doesn't look like it doesn't like to even fly when it's here. It runs more than flies, but then takes this huge migration to Southern Africa and returns to precisely the same place where, where, where it came from. And that was um, an issue um, in, in this reintroduction project they had in the Netherlands where they were, they were incubating corn crake eggs to save them from predators, um, hand-rearing them, and then releasing them. And what they would do is they would release these chicks at various point, places around the Netherlands and the, you know, the Dutch countryside to places they wanted those birds to return to. And the following year, most of the chicks returned to the car park of the scientific institute where they've been reared. And they realized, oh, it's it's the stars. And so they now realize you can't, if you're reintroducing corn crakes somewhere, you can't let the young ones see the stars or see the night sky until uh, it's in the spot where you want it to return to. So it's, okay. it's, how, you know, it's, it's, you learn these things by trial and error, but at least this is known now. And that could be a, a valuable tool in Ireland. I know that uh, Photo Wildlife Park in, um, in, in Cork are doing um, captive corn creek breeding and rearing and um, with the hopes of reintroducing these birds. Uh, often people think that when a species is declining, well, that the, 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 the answer is just breed them in captivity and, and reintroduce them. And that can work really well, but you have to make sure that the root cause of their initial decline has disappeared. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, those those introduced birds won't survive. So with the corn crakes, we have to make sure that there is sufficient habitat that they require so that they can return there and then keep the chicks blindfolded or covered or whatever until they've, they're returned to the area we want them to come back to. And then uh, and then you remove the cover and, and, and they'll, they'll fix that position. Um, a good example of a place, a case where reintroductions worked really well would be uh, the red kite, a big bird of prey, which now has become quite a common sight where I live in County Wicklow parts of North Dublin, parts of County Down as well, and is gradually, slowly but surely, spreading out from that East Leinster stronghold across the rest of the country, um, but um, still very much Wicklow is still the stronghold. That was a bird, a big bird of prey that was once very common in Ireland, but it was it was persecuted by humans. It was shot and poisoned out of existence in Ireland and, and disappeared completely. And we know that that was the reason it happened. There was, well, the habitat hadn't changed that much. There's plenty of food for them, plenty of, you know, plenty of nesting sites. It was human persecution. So, if you tackle the human persecution, remove that through education, through engaging with local communities, then you can safely reintroduce that bird and it will thrive. And that's what's happened. So that's a, a great example of where you remove the root cause of the extinction and the bird can come back uh, with the corn crick because it's habitat based. That's much harder because you have to not just create, you know, 
just one one field here. You have to have a whole network of reserves and and, and preserved land uh, and work with farmers and landowners as well to make sure that there's corridors where these birds can thrive and 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 hopefully hopefully they can return to some of their former strongholds. But it's going to be a very long time. It's it's going to be a long game. Yeah. And like it strikes me then that this will be an area like that, a growing area when it comes to employment in the country and like the types of jobs developing. And I'm just thinking like, I hate to mention the old leaving cert, but we are in results mm-hmm. month and God yes. love anybody going through it. I wouldn't, couldn't <laughs> I pay me well. for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like for people who are looking ahead, maybe heading into fifth and sixth year in school now in September. And if you're interested in the environment, I'd say now is a very interesting time to be studying these kind of things because because like you say, there is so much being learned daily in this area. Oh, yes, very much so. And the skills of people who are qualified as, let's say, you know, environmental surveyors or conservationists or ornithologists, these skills are more and more in demand for lots of reasons. Because our ecosystem is going out of kilter, there's you know, the more and more regulations uh, that, that need to be complied with, quite rightly, at EU and at national level. So when people are you know, seeking planning permission or there's you know, environmental impact assessments for, for protected sites, people need to, they need to be able to do that work. So I, I think, mm-hmm. I think in, in the years to come, um, pretty soon, that's going to be quite a lucrative career option for lots of people. It already is. I mean, one of the main questions people are asking me at the horse show is, could you recommend an environmental consultant? Um, uh, they're charging huge prices. You know, is there anyone who's cheaper? Uh, the fact is they can command very high prices because there are so few of them and the work that they do is required by law in many cases. So it's it's a license to print money. Um, so that's one way to look at it from the more mercenary side. And that's the way, you know, people have to make a living, of course. But the other way to look at it, it's also um, a great opportunity for, for young people who want to make a difference to the planet. Yeah. We want to leave it in a better condition than they found it in. Uh, the previous generations have failed so miserably at. Uh, I think that it's a great opportunity to do that. And there are more and more opportunities for jobs in conservation and ecology than there ever have been. And that's just going to increase uh, because unfortunately the situation with our planet and with our environment here in Ireland especially it's really deteriorating. There's a long way to go before we can even start to say the declines have been reversed. We're having a few wins with certain species but we have to look at a whole landscape scale restoration and uh, a total, uh, I suppose, a total reset of our the way we think about our environment and how we we impact it, but more importantly, how it impacts us. Because we humans, we like to think that we're separate from nature. We're we're not. We're an animal like any other. We rely on the same environment as the animals, the other animals, and um, if if they're suffering, ultimately we suffer too. And I think that that's um, that's a message I certainly like to get out to anybody who's who's considering a college course, who's considering a career path. It's certainly a very good line of work to get into. And if you've any mums and dads listening that might be perhaps concerned about the viability of job prospects in this. If you had a young person who wants to do something to help the environment, well, you heard it here. There are there's definitely a future career and um, money to be made, apparently, in in these areas of study. Well, Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland, uh, pleasure as always. Thank you very much for joining us on this week's episode of Let's Go Green. We'll be back after the break. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid. Managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland. Of course, I forgot to mention a little bit earlier on um, when I was uh, finishing up there with Niall that if you are interested in birdwatching and you want to find out more about Birdwatch Ireland and the work that they do, you can log on to their website birdwatchireland.ie and they do have 
loads of resources there, but also um, notices about different events that they will be organising or attending. And as I said to Niall, I haven't ever heard a corn craig out in the wild, or at least I don't believe that I have. And it strikes me that for some of you, you might not have an idea of what it sounds like too. So it is particularly um, unusual when it comes to a, a bird sound, bird song, um, it's, I have to be honest, not so pleasant to listen to. So I'm only going to play a short clip. It's, it's, it's quite, um, it gets in on your head, put it that way. But um, for, for some of you, this might be a, a, a very familiar sound um, in the past, but unfortunately and sadly, not so um, commonplace today. But this is what the corn crake, one of the birds we were discussing before the break with Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland, this is what the corn crake sounds like. So is that a new sound to you? Um, I don't ever, like when I went looking for it, um, I, I don't remember ever hearing it out in the wild and perhaps I just wasn't paying attention. Like, you know, because we do get caught up with what's going on in our own heads. But have you ever heard a corn crake out in the wild? Are you making efforts? And perhaps you're a landowner. Like, are you making efforts to make your your land and your practices more friendly towards land nesting birds like the corn crake, the grey partridge, and the lapwing that we were discussing a little bit earlier with Nile Hatch. Well, another story that caught my eye in the last couple of days was a survey conducted by the Irish Farmers Journal. So in their reader survey, they have found that as many as 50% of farmers are open to converting to organic farming. And according to Minister Pippa Hackett, um, who is the Minister of the Department of State of Agriculture, she said that it would have been unthinkable a few short years ago. And I wonder, is that your opinion too? I'm not sure that I agree. Like I've heard of farmers across the Midlands looking into going organic in for years now. I know that there has been perhaps scepticism, but it's something that I know a lot of farmers have been investigating in and, and uh, perhaps the conversation needs to be a little bit more nuanced. So it's very interesting to see that up to 50% of farmers who, of course, 50% of those who responded to the survey, we should say, um, are are interested in converting to um, organic farming methods and that they will be looking at investigating the organic farming scheme or the OFS, uh, which will be opening for new entrants later on this year. And the other thing then uh, that the survey found was that one in five farmers are considering planting trees under the government's new forestry programme. And it's really like that's something that I think really seems to be um, the unsurprising part of it, um, for want of a better way of putting it. Like forestry has been, well, (laughs) popping up in unusual places, as um, Niall mentioned, you know, out in boglands and forests and places where perhaps in the past there wouldn't have been one. But, you know, as long as it's done in a sustainable way, 
as long as the, the trees that are planted are ones that are suitable for our climate and suitable for the wildlife and are not going to disrupt the the, the, the amenities, the, the, the landscape around it. Well, then, you know what, if, if it works, it works. Um, and I just thought it was particularly interesting that we now have more up to date information around it, because I think sometimes the conversation and it, I know it's something that I talk about a lot here on the show, but I do think it's worth saying again. I think the conversation around climate change, around biodiversity, it needs to be more nuanced. We need to take the time to like to acknowledge the fact that there are many, many farmers around the Midlands, around the country, doing their bit to mind their land in a sustainable and environmentally friendly way. And yes, sure, there will always be people who are cynical of it. There will always be people who want to do things the same way that they've done them for years and they don't want to change. But, you know, shock horror, we have those in every job. Do you know there'll always be someone who doesn't want to upscale or doesn't want to change how they do their job and grumble when they have to. But, you know, that's what's beautiful about being in a democratic country. Um, you know, that's what makes life interesting. If we all were willing to do the exact same thing at the exact same time, well, we'd kind of be a bit dull, you know. Um, but look, I think it's it's worth um, having conversation with farmers about w- once again on the programme in the next couple of weeks. And I will do that because it'll be interesting to investigate this survey from the Irish Farmers Journal that was out there on the the 10th of August, so last Thursday's edition of the Farmer's Journal. And you can also get it on thefarmersjournal.ie. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking about vegetable oil and using it to power a fleet. Stay tuned. Do you need treatment or surgery? There's no need to wait or travel abroad. Receive treatment at Kingsbridge Private Hospital in Belfast or Ballykelly under the Northern Ireland Planned Healthcare Scheme at potentially no cost. Why wait? Text hello to 51777 or visit kingsbridgeprivatehospital.com for further information. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid. Managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103 and I hope you're enjoying the show so far this week. Well, as you may have heard earlier in the week, a Midlands business is planning to fuel its vehicle fleet entirely with vegetable oil. Now, this one piqued my interest because as I remarked on Midlands Today the other day um, when I was speaking with Will Faulkner, I remember in college having a friend whose vehicle had a, a distinctive odour. He used to combine or I think it was a diesel engine and he used to use a uh, chip oil or what he told us was chip oil. Now, um, it, 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 the car worked fine. There was an odour. I, I I can't deny that. But uh, the car worked fine and it did seem to be, um, well, it, it definitely piqued our interests back in the early noughties when we were in college. Well, Grand Engineering in Burr is taking a real stab at this. Now, they're going at it in a much more obviously safe and uh, scientific way than my friend did back in the day. But they're switching over to a new vehicle called HVO or a new fuel, my apologies, called HVO. And they believe that there's a big upside in making the switch for both vehicles and homes. So that's hydrogen treated vegetable oil. It's a replacement for fossil fuels made from recycled cooking oils and has a higher calorific value, which is important when it comes to vehicles. The company owns five trucks as well as a few vans and cars and the entire fleet will be powered by the biodegradable substance in the next few weeks. Stephen Grant from Grant Engineering has been 
been speaking with Midlands 103's Will Faulkner. If you're living in Athlone, you'll have seen the electric bus travelling around the town. And these are not a common sight on Irish roads, or indeed in many parts of the world, because the heavier the vehicle, sometimes electric motors can be unsuitable, both in range and in torque and so on. So, is traditional diesel completely dead? And is there a way to make it even cleaner? Stephen Grant is with us from Grant Engineering in Burr. Morning, Stephen. Morning, Will. What size is your fleet? Uh, we have five trucks here in Grant, uh, plus, plus a couple of vans and some diesel cars as well. So in the main, then, everything is diesel-powered, would it be? Everything is diesel-powered, and the plan will be now to move. We have the, the tank and the pump equipment and all that installed. So we'll be moving our fleet to HVO in the next couple of weeks. Now, you'll have to explain uh, that term that to us, Stephen. What is HVO? HVO is a hydrogen-treated vegetable oil. Basically what it is, it's, a, it's a, an oil replacement. It's a replacement for fossil fuels. And it's basically made from a lot of it is recycled cooking oil, processing oils for a cook and that grows naturally. And then that can be supplemented as well with animal fats and with rapeseed oil. And that's treated in a special way with a hydrogen system to remove the oxygen completely from the oil so that it won't grow any micro growths or anything in there. And it'll last for at least 10 years in the tank. And, and it won't freeze either. It'll go down to at least minus 25 before it'll even start to gel. It has the same calorific value as kerosene, a higher calorific value, for example, than diesel. Diesel has approximately 11.866 kilowatts per kilogram of weight of fuel, and HVO has 12.222. So it is maybe about 3% higher in calorific value. It's um, completely biodegradable. You put it on your hands, you can't really smell it. There's almost no smell from from the fumes from it and uh, it's uh, it's readily available as well as I say you well, can order it today and have it tomorrow Yeah that was going to be a key question because if, in planning yeah. journeys if you have a diesel powered car or, or van you can pull into just about any forecourt in the country and refuel but where will you get HVO if you're in Donegal for instance uh, Well the situation there is if you're running on HVO, then you can just put diesel in. If you can't find a HVO pump, you just put diesel in. It's, it's, it's a complete drop-in fuel for uh, transport, completely drop-in. You just pull up, fill your tank with HVO, and the next day you, you don't have HVO, so you put in diesel. And do you need to uh, modify the engine in some way, Stephen? No, no modification required on a diesel engine. There is some modifications required on boilers, all right. You need to change the jet and uh, set up the burner in, just set the air in a small, it's cut two or three hundred maybe euro for a homeowner to change over to HVO because you need to change the filters and a few things, but it's probably two or three hours work for a service engineer to have your system changed over to HVO. Now, with uh, an oil boiler, when you change over to HVO, then you really have to stay with HVO I mean, you could change back, but you'd need to change the jet and get the burner reworked. So it probably would be better once you change than stay with HVO. You know, it's, re- it's readily available, as I say. You can order it, Flynn Fuels and Mullingar Stockard, 
uh, uh, company in Shinroan Stockard, and there's a lot of it being imported in now into Cork and Belfast and, and various areas. Like it is, it is readily available. Yeah, much as the environment is a priority, so too will be pound, shillings and pence for a lot of companies and for a lot of homeowners. So how do the economics compare with conventional fuels? It compares very favourably with transport diesel. I think in actual fact it could be a little cheaper uh, on transport. It's probably it's a little bit more expensive for homes, but that could be sorted out with the government because it's taxed now more or less as if it was a fossil fuel where it could be, it should be taxed as a biofuel. And then that would mean that you wouldn't have the carbon tax or anything like that on it. That should be removed. And that would bring it down pretty close to the price of kerosene. I'm not sure whether you could ever get down exactly the same. Uh, but a lot of, say, for example, you know, there's a lot of movement there because people want to see to go green. And if you, if you want to go green and want to go 85, 90% green, then by using HVO, you've done that without spending any money on your home. Now, but I would still recommend that if somebody changing over to like a green fuel like HVO, that they should do some upgrades on their house, you see, that, and then make sure that it's in a condensing boiler. It probably would be a bit wasteful to, you know, convert an old cast iron boiler that's only maybe 65 or 70% efficient that's 30 years old. To, you know, to change that over to HVO, I think that would be, you know, the wrong thing to do. Mm. It should be with a modern condensing boiler, and which will be at least 25% more efficient than your old cast iron boiler. And, uh, you know, so if somebody wants to go green and, you know, do some basic insulation as well, then they can reduce their running costs but become greener than fitting a heat pump. Well, anybody wishing to read a case study, there's an interesting one on your website about a primary school in Cornwall that made the switch to HVO. So uh, a lot of background information available. But just on transport, why not go the whole hog and uh, buy electric vans, buy electric cars, buy electric lorries? Well, I think the, the problem there is the weight of the battery is a big problem. For example, I was told by, by a, a car dealer recently that a van, an electric van of a certain make, I'm not sure which make it was, that the battery in that is a ton weight. So, you know, you're carrying one ton around with you. I suppose an engine and gearbox would have been maybe like 250 kgs or 200 kgs. Now you have a battery that's a ton weight. There's another example with JCB. They have developed a hydrogen engine for their diggers and they're saying that a standard digger in the UK was £165,000. But if they went electric, the battery for that would be 400000 and be eight mm. ton weight. Mm. You know, so that's kind of puts it in context of, of where the feasibility is. You see, and, and even going for electric buses and things like that, while that seems like a good idea, and it probably is in, in a way, but in the other side of it then, you wouldn't have to buy a new bus at all. You just change over to HVO and you're now up to 90% green uh, and, 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 and have no cost at all. So it needs to be thought through very carefully. There's a lot going for, for HVO, both in transport and for decarbonizing of home heating. Huge, huge amount of opportunities there. Stephen? Combined with, obviously, insulation and things like that. 
Well, it's certainly a fascinating topic. Would you choose recycled vegetable oil to fuel your vehicle? Would you um, consider it as an option? I suppose I, I certainly would nowadays. I'm definitely more open when it comes to choosing a car. I have to admit, I used to be very... Uh, brand oriented purely because I liked a particular brand and I trusted that that car wouldn't let me down. It wasn't necessarily because I wanted to be seen driving a particular brand. For me, it was more because I drive so much. It was more I wanted something that I knew could be reliable and I had had a car that was totally unreliable. So, you know, once bitten, twice shy. But I think we're becoming more open to these opportunities and it's great to see local companies here in the Midlands leading the way. So it'll be very interesting to see how Grants Engineering get on and um, progress with this relatively new fuel. And I say relatively because I I know it's been around for a while, but perhaps not on a commercial level that, that we need for it to be scalable. Well, let me know what you think. Would you consider it? Are you more open-minded now when it comes to choosing a vehicle? Um, we, we don't have the public, an, in, public transport infrastructure as of yet to get rid of all of our own vehicles, particularly here in the Midlands. So we are going to be shopping around for motors for the foreseeable future. So would you be more open? Would you consider a HVO vehicle, a hydrogen-treated vegetable oil, a recycled cooking oil as your um, fuel in the coming years. Let me know what you think. Or indeed, if there is a topic that I haven't discussed here on the show, but you think I should, please do feel free to get in contact with me. Go on to midlands103.com. Click on the on-air team. You will see my name, Ashling O'Rourke. Click there, send me an email directly and I will get back to you. Frequently on the show, we have topics that are inspired by people who get in touch with me and um, I really do want to hear from you and I read all of those messages and thank you for them. We will be back after the break. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103 and I'm afraid we are approaching the end of time for our slot this week. So I do hope that you have enjoyed listening to the show this week. We will be checking in with another company who is looking to become carbon neutral for their fleet in next week's episode of the show. So stay tuned to that. And just on a quick note, I know I mentioned with Niall Hatch um, that we are in August. It's the leave and start time of year for the results and for the CEO offers. And obviously the very best of luck to anybody waiting on those results in the coming days. And I feel your pain. Um, it's very stressful. It's very hard. And I know it's very hard for everybody in the house, not just the student themselves. But it is worth taking a look. So if you're interested, perhaps where you're heading into, maybe you're heading into fifth year or even transition year and you're trying to think about what you'd like to do when you finish up in school, have a look at the website Fetch Courses and like just put in the environmental issues, put in, you know, sustainability and see what comes up. Because I think many of us would be surprised at the amount of courses that you can take to become, you know, environmental planners, to become, you know, ornithologists, all of these areas of speciality that, as Niall Hatch mentioned, are actually really good jobs to have and are going to be needed more and more um, as we continue this fight against climate change, but also as we continue to try and do things better. 
as we try to improve as a society. So it is worth your while sitting down and having a look. And, you know, if you care about the environment and you want to you want to really at least try to make it a difference in a positive way. Take a look um, have a chat perhaps um, with um, your parents, you know, see what they think you might be good at because at the end of the day, they know you best um, and family members and friends. And, you know, there are so many more courses out there than you might think. And I know when I was starting out in media, I was really shocked when my mum highlighted the journalism degree in DCU for me because that was that ended up being what I did. Um, but I didn't know about it. You know, it's it's only when someone happened to spot it in the newspaper uh, that I found out that it existed. Now, you don't need to um, go through the old newspapers for them. Nowadays, you've got Fetch courses and it is a website. If you've got somebody in your life heading into that senior cycle part of secondary school in September, it's worth sitting down and taking them through it and having a chat with them. And of course, perhaps even going to see a guidance counsellor. But you will be pleasantly surprised, I feel, about the level of courses that you can take nowadays that will help you find a career that will have um, a positive and long lasting impact. And that is what we're all about here, here on Let's Go Green on Midlands 103. And as I said earlier, if there is something that you would like me to discuss here on the show, please do get in contact with me through midlands103.com. Click on the on air team button, click on my own name there, Ashling O'Rourke, and you can send me an email there. And if that, um, if you've lost track of that, give the office a call and they will talk you through it. But I'm afraid um, we've run right out of time on this week's show. I just want to give a shout out to the winner of the best dressed section at the Tullamore show yesterday in Tullamore, the largest one day agricultural event in the country. And that was Cleo Knight, formerly of Midlands 103 for her sustainably sourced outfit. Cleo winning there for best dressed. And I believe it was Cleo's first time winning best dressed. So um, a shout out goes to Cleo. And I know all of us here in the station are delighted for her. And perhaps we might chat to her at some point about how she... um, puts these outfits together in a very practical and um, let's say budget friendly way. She's uh, gifted um, in it. So fair play to Cleo and I'm absolutely delighted for her. On next week's show, we will be looking ahead to um, carbon becoming carbon neutral as a company, as I've said. And I've got another interesting piece lined up for you, but you're going to have to tune in and find out what it is same time next week. In the meantime, have a great week, stay safe and we'll be back again next week with another episode of Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. Let's Go Green, sponsored by Airgrid, managing and operating Ireland's electricity grid for a cleaner energy future. Check out airgrid.ie for more.